Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, HER2 positive colorectal cancer therapies in clinical practice. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge powered by Kaplan and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from CGEN. In this final podcast of our three-part series, Dr. John Marshall and Dr. Sunny Kim take their discussion of metastatic colorectal cancer and HER2-targeted therapies to the clinical level and share some patient cases. You don't want to miss these clinical pearls. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CRC3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Marshall is a professor in the Department of Hematology Oncology at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Kim is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Colorado in Aurora. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Marshall will begin our discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to Oncology Morning Commute. We are focused on HER2 positive CRC therapies in clinical practice. This is our third in a series of three podcasts, although Dr. Kim and I are sure they're going to invite us back for at least six more in our series that we are running, uh, competing for those other fancy podcasts that you have uh, on your phone right now. Dr. Kim, do you do you have any podcasts that you actually listen to regularly? Uh, the, the, the New York Times Daily, that's my go-to. Is that, what is that like? Is that stressful? I would think that's kind of stressful. Yes, it's not the most uh, encouraging news that I hear, but it yeah. keeps me informed and they do a great job. I would like to pitch Michael Lewis. He does this podcast right now. He, this first one was on, uh, you know, referees and, and how we don't respect them anymore in society. And he's doing one now on coaches. And I, as a mentor myself, and I'm old, so I get to call myself a mentor. I, I'm really appreciating my role as a coach at this point because I've, I've seen it all and I'm probably not seen it all, but it's a good podcast. So if anybody's looking for a, another Drive Time podcast before our next series of podcasts comes out, uh, please feel free to go to one of the two that we recommend highly. But in our third uh, podcast, we're, as we say, focused on HER2 positivity. And Dr. Kim and I thought it would be really useful to kind of bring forward some uh, cases. Um, and Sonny's been nice enough to kind of let me go first on a case that I'm actually actively seeing right now. It's a 65-year-old woman, and she actually presented de novo with metastatic colorectal cancer. And um, we did at the baseline broad molecular testing, some a theme we have been preaching about throughout this series that it's critical to know right from the beginning what the patient has. And so we partner with a company to do our molecular testing. So we had all of these things, including uh, both IHC and genetics for HER2, and she was three plus positive for HER2 uh, expression on immunohistochemistry at baseline. And we tried initial chemotherapy with her, and um, she really just hated it. Um, it. It made her sort of chronically sick, sicker, more nausea, more fatigue than we typically see with these kinds of drugs, our traditional colon cancer drugs. And she just was very intolerant. And to, uh, on top of that, she wasn't responding very well. Her cancer was best kind of stable, 
Um, I then shifted her down to single agent capecitabine just to see if I could hold her in check uh, with something that was a little better tolerated. Even that didn't make her feel very well. And we just saw her back um, only about three or four months into her uh, diagnosis. Um, and, you know, with a scan that essentially showed some worsening of disease. Now, it's still pretty small volume disease, and she's not symptomatic specifically from the tumor. So she's not feeling the cancer, and the tumor burden is not huge. Um, but she does want to treat this cancer, but she's really shying away from uh, any sort of more chemotherapy approach. Um, and so, Dr. Kim, what do you think I should do with this lady? Her two, three plus positivity, kind of tired of chemo, low tumor burden in the second, you know, second line, 1.5 line of, of initial treatment. Well, um, it sounds like she'd be a great candidate for a chemo-free option now. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking less of uh, trastuzumab directs because this is an antibody drug conjugate with a chemo portion. But you know, there I might jump in. She'd already had her in a TCAN, so that's a topo one inhibitor. Mm -hmm. you, you think I need to be concerned that I'm coming back? That would be another topo one inhibitor, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, and perhaps another reason why not to not to give it and go a completely different route. So I've been thinking about, you know, the trastuzumab combinations, um, and we discussed that in the last podcast, of course, uh, trastuzumab plus lipatinib or trastuzumab um, plus pertuzumab or trastuzumab plus tucatinib, I think are all really great options. Um, you know, if this is a woman who has had a cardiac issues or has a borderline EF, perhaps I would stay away from the trastuzumab pertuzumab option um, because that can worsen ejection fraction and worsen cardiomyopathy. Um, with, uh, you know, trastuzumab to catnib, I think the big side effect there can be fatigue and diarrhea. Um, so that should be kept in mind. If this woman is sick of diarrhea from a reno tecan, perhaps stay away from that. Uh, but lapatinib also has, has some of those issues, issues too. Uh, but for her, I think more of a trastuzumab TKI combination would make the most sense to me. Yeah, it's exactly what I was thinking. And I think, you know, all of us face guidelines, reimbursement issues. Um, our EMRs are built such that if you wanted to order something like that off pathway, if you will, um, it might be a struggle and cost us extra time uh, and the like. And so, um, you know, I we all face that struggle. We all face that barrier to delivering what we think is the best care. Uh, one of, maybe it was in your podcast too, a recent podcast looking at the cost of U.S. healthcare. Uh, just what we spend every year is more than, if you take the nine next countries who consume healthcare, what we do as one country is more than the other nine countries combined. <laughs> so, but it's nice to have access when you can have access, let's face it. And so I did put in orders for a trastuzumab. In her case, I'm going to try the tucatinib uh, approach, um, expecting to have FDA approval pretty soon and um, approve for other diseases. But I suspect this will generate for me a phone call or at least an early denial or something that's going to make me have to jump through one more hoop uh, to get the drug. The other thing I had to remember as a 
kind of out of practice at this is I needed to get a, a mug up. I needed to get, in her case, I ordered an echocardiogram, but uh, just to make sure I've got, she's got good ejection fraction as you alluded to. So um, we are excited about what this might offer her just to, you know, thinking about the results that you reviewed for us in the last podcast about, um, you know, adding the tucatinib to trastuzumab did improve the response rate and was relatively impressive progression-free survival. So if I can get it into her without significant side effects and we can enjoy that PFS, I thought this would be a really good good choice. So I agree. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad you're reinforcing my my thinking as well on how to uh, approach her, her care. And so she's optimistic as well. Your turn. A question for you is what do you do after that stops working? What are you thinking? Well, I'm hoping to know more a year from now. That's the beauty of what we're uh, doing. If I can get average PFS out of her, then we'll all be a bit smarter about that. But I think before I would try another HER2 agent, for example, um, I'd want to retest that she's got HER2 positivity. So is she getting resistant because we burned out that clone, as you were talking about earlier, or uh, has the drugs just stopped working? We could come at it with another angle. But honestly, I'd probably go back to a more traditional chemo approach for a while if she'll let me. <laughs> and that's one of those uh, issues of um, dosing and, and uh, coaching people uh, through uh, but you know, she, chemo didn't work all that well. So my enthusiasm for a rechallenge is not high. Um, and but I, I would hope that by that time we'd have a little bit more data, another year's worth of trials, another year's worth of experience does seem to matter nowadays in oncology. And um, so that's what I tell patients: to kick it down the can a little ways and let us get smarter uh, about these things, and, and maybe just maybe we'll have a better answer. Yeah, absolutely. I find that the clinical trial landscape, even a year later, can can make all the difference in terms of options for patients. Yeah. You got a case out there in the Wild West? I do. And, you know, this may not have an easy answer, but interested in, you know, picking your brain on this. So this is a, uh, a young woman. Unfortunately, this is what we're seeing more and more these days. Um, she's a 43-year-old woman. Um, she has metastatic rectal cancer. Uh, KRAS, NRAS, wild type, um, and uh, she has a HER2 mutation. So I actually even tested to see if she had amplification or overexpression on IHC and FISH, and she doesn't have any of that, just this mutation. Um, and this was through next-gen sequencing. Uh, this appeared to be an activating mutation according to um, you know, their, their analysis. And, you know, she's gone through a number of chemotherapy drugs. And as most, you know, young women, they, they seem to have a very difficult time, especially with the nausea, vomiting, um, and the cold sensitivity. She, she got Fulfox, um, Bev, Bevacizumab. And then because of the, uh, the, the KRAS and RAS wild type feature, um, we decided to do full theory panitumumab for her next line of treatment. And she... She hated the side effects, of course, and um, she didn't really get a, a clear clinical benefits. The first scan maybe showed some stable disease and the second scan showed that things were worsening. Her CA was going up. And right now she's actually on a clinical trial with a dual immunotherapy, but I am itching to use um, some kind of HER2-directed agents in her. Uh, but 
as we know, you know, HER2 mutations, the benefit with HER2 directed drugs in HER2 mutations is not clear in colorectal cancer. It's, it's clear um, in lung cancer, but we're, we're not there uh, as a field yet. I was curious to get your thoughts on if you would target and with what. Yeah, I, I um, think it's a great question and it is a challenge and I understand why you'd be struggling with, with that challenge. Um, first, congratulations on finding it, testing it, and thinking about it, because that's part of the uh, one of the major themes that you and I are trying to bring out for everyone, um, is that you, you don't even have the option if you don't know about it. So make sure, make sure we test and, and using the right test. The second thing that your case brings up to me is that, you know, when, when you have that patient for EGFR-targeted therapies, with penitubumab, cetuximab, who are left-sided, RAS wild-type, BRAF wild-type, and, and not responding, that's when my radar goes up that something else is going on. And often we'll look for these HER2 uh, positivities, or in your case, turns out to be a HER2 mutation, which does, some literature would suggest, would predict for resistance to the EGFR therapies. And you know, now, in that very refined patient, who I, you know, is in the sweet spot of EGFR, the response rates are in the 70, 80% in some studies. So you can, you know, when so when you see non-responsiveness, you really you get suspicious that there's something resistant going on. Um, in terms of uh, you know, what you know, therapies to use, I mean, there is, as you say, some track record in the lung cancer space. Um, you know, the, the drugs we have been talking about, you would tend to focus on more of the TKI kind of uh, approach um, simply because that's where these mutation driver sites generally are, um, is in the ATP binding site in the internal uh, side of where the TKIs actually work. So I would, I would think about that. Um, but, you know, even even low-level expressors, you do start to think about uh, targeted uh, antibodies as well. So I'd be I'd be tempted um, if you can get it, and I think more and more we are able to get access to some of these even off trial um, to uh, give those drugs a, a try. What was your thought if you if you had, if you could pull one off the shelf? Is the one that would be top shelf for you? Oh gosh, I know it's been a huge debate, but I, I like what you said about um, getting at it with a TKI. That has been my initial thought. Um, of course, trying to pick the right one um, is a bit of a challenge. But with her, we've been trying several therapies, and I've, I've told them a lot of this is trial and error. Unfortunately, you know it's hard to predict with any hundred percent confidence what will work or what won't work. And so I'm leaning towards um, a trastuzumab plus a TKI combination in her. Yeah. And I know you and I both come from fairly big communities. And, you know, I think about the general oncologist who might be in their car listening to our uh, podcast back and forth this morning. And um, really, how many things are coming across their desks? How many new changes uh, day in and day out and across bunches of cancers? And here we are. Um, as really only getting to focus on a few subsets uh, of cancers and not really having the right answer. Uh, we don't have an obvious answer, let's put it that way, as to how to tackle this. And it, to me, brings up this concept of, uh, I've been thinking a lot about lately, of shared decision-making. 
-hmm. of you know going into your patient's room, having some knowledge that you go in with, but not having what is a clear cut answer, presenting that to a patient who has even less knowledge than we do, um, and and giving them a choice and basically saying, look, it's up to you to pick which way we want to go and. It is very much the way we are practicing medicine today in many cases. Um, and patients bring their own um, you know, biases and baggage to the table. We have, we have thoughts and ideas about things and we wanna offer them everything we can, but they are afraid, they wanna stay alive. They're willing to endure side effects for even a small chance uh, of benefit. And I think about oncologists who don't happen to know as much about these drugs as we do in colon cancer and you know facing these kinds of challenges so the, this is a very long setup for you know i know you i know we are available to those docs um whether it's a televisit second opinion or you know a quick email to try and help coach each other quite honestly on how best to take care of the patient that's in front of them right now, because certainly you and I can't uh, be there for everybody. And in particular in rural communities and uh, places where there aren't all of the multi-D access that you and I enjoy, um, you know, find themselves facing with, faced with these difficult decisions all the time. You're in a, both a big city and the middle of a huge rural world. I mean, how, how do you guys handle that kind of support for your colleagues out in the countryside? Yeah, we, um, we actually have very good relationships with um, some, some of the community oncologists. Um, uh, we, we, you know, we see their patients for second, third opinions. We're very respectful about making sure that they're aware about our uh, decision thinking and you know what we have offered the patient, just making sure that they're in the loop. And it's also a great educational moment there too, to tell them that these are options, this is what the data shows so far. And in situations like these where the answer isn't quite clear, um, just letting them know our, our thinking. And I think um, having that ability to talk with uh, local oncologists is, is incredibly important. Um, and the hope is of course, that in a few years, we'll actually get an answer to that question through clinical trials and um, more, more retrospective data that we've mined. Yeah. I kind of predict and hope that we will get to be sort of connected networks where the hub and spoke, where you've got specialized docs in one area and, you know, centralized and providing at least advice uh, to our colleagues around uh, the nation. It will be one of the ways we help deal with the staffing issues that we have. Uh, around uh, the country too, is, uh, is to in, give everybody the same access to expertise that uh, you and I enjoy in centers such as ours. Um, let's take a sort of last look at this issue about cases. And, you know, you had brought up earlier the fact that we need to test people in front line, but at the same time, there's a lot of data now that says in the right patient frontline, we should be giving EGFR targeted therapies. And yet we're concerned about that juxtaposition of EGFR and HER2. So could you kind of talk a little bit about um, in, in making a frontline biologic decision, um, what you need to know before you dove in on say wanting to give an EGFR frontline? That's right. Uh, so 
historically in the US uh, for first line treatment for advanced colorectal cancer, we like giving Fulfox and Bevacizumab. Um, Fulfox, uh, we, we know the toxicities very well. Bevacizumab has very low toxicities. Um, it's, it's very well tolerated. But there was new data that came out earlier this year with the Paradigm trial that it looked like a Fulfox plus an EGFR inhibitor like panitumumab and cetuximab uh, had a better survival than Fulfox with bevacizumab. And um, actually, John, I think you've been talking about this for several years that you've been kind of trying to adopt more of that European adding the EGFR inhibitor before this data even came out. And now we have very good data showing that perhaps adding the EGFR inhibitor right at the beginning is important. But as we both talked about several times, um, having a HER2 uh, overexpressing or amplified tumor predicts for poorer response to EGFR inhibition. And as the paradigm data came out and as more drugs are coming out for HER2, um, I'm, I'm thinking that we really need to understand what the HER2 status is at the very beginning before we start offering patients EGFR inhibition that probably won't work, um, poor response rates, poor PFS, and also just that, that horrible rash, which I think maybe some oncologists think isn't a big deal, but I've seen some pretty, pretty severe cases and that don't really resolve that well with the ointments and the oral antibiotic. Um, so curious to get also your thoughts about um, the, this new data that's come out and implications for HER2 testing. Yeah, so you gotta do the HER2 testing before you're giving EGFR. I mean, I'll just say it strong, you really do. Otherwise it's gonna backfire on you. Um, and um, I agree with you. I, if I need a response um, and depth of response will matter, then that, you know, for that patient, whether it's to convert them to resectable or they're symptomatic, I need a quick response, that sort of thing. And they are in that, really, it's down to about 15% of patients who are candidates for EGFR targeted therapies. Yeah, I think it's the right thing to do. Um, to your point about the rash, I tend to limit it to maybe two or three months at most and then kind of revisit where I am uh, because I don't really think that EGFR is a good maintenance kind of approach. I, I like switching it out at that point, just as my own personal strategy. Back to our main point of knowing what chess pieces are on the board. If I'm HER2 positive, I know that EGFR is lower, much lower on my list, but I've got these HER2 targeted therapies that will come around. So I've got BEV in the front line, got HER2 targeting in the second line and beyond. So it sort of reshuffles what I'm thinking about and what, what chess pieces I have on the board for the patient in front of me uh, to manage their cancer. And it, it actually makes it quite exciting. Every time I get a gene test or molecular test back on a patient, I open it almost with um, an anticipation uh, of what am I going to find in this patient and, and an excitement. And yeah, when I find that G12D mutation from KRAS, I sort of go, wow, there's, a, there's one of those again. Um, but when you do find a HER2 or an MSI or a BRAF, um, it refocuses you and gets you thinking about that patient in a different way and categorizing that patient. Um, so. Uh, for me, I think it's critical, as you say. Uh, to the other end, and just maybe close uh, kind of quickly on sort of the toxicity things of this. So as you mentioned, the rash, HER2, cardiac, um, with each of these subsets of patients, there come uh, distinguishing side effects. 
Um, and, you know, that's something we got to coach our patients on as well. Do you have any particular strategy for dealing with toxicities in your patients? Do you refer them any place? Do you provide them written information? How do you do it? Yeah, um, well, it depends on the drug. Uh, with trastuzumab to catnib, uh, the, the side effect to note is the diarrhea. Um, for, for most patients, you can treat it as it comes by giving uh, loperamide, um, uh, lamotil, uh, in some cases, tincture of opium. And that, that seems to do a pretty good job controlling the diarrhea. Yeah, maybe dose modifications too. I always think we, we tend to give our doses too high anyway in most of these drugs. That's right, because in these clinical trials, you know, you're getting the best of the best, the people who look great but happen to just have cancer. And so um, it's different when you're treating real world, real world patients. Uh, when I think about the antibody drug conjugate, again, uh, these are chemotherapy drugs essentially. And also there's that small risk of interstitial pneumonitis that is, is definitely a real side effect, even though it's in a really rare population. Um, but when it happens, it can be fatal in certain cases. And so for those patients who are on the antibody drug conjugate, it's important to make sure that any signs of hypoxia, cough, shortness of breath, that if you're fortunate enough to be able to get them to a pulmonologist as soon as possible, that's very important, or a very low threshold to hold the drug or give steroids to make sure that it doesn't escalate into a, a really bad situation. That's awesome. Thank you for that review. And Dr. Kim, I have to tell you, we miss you here in Washington, D.C., but I know that gang out in the middle of the country um, is, is very happy that you're there. And I hope you get some skiing in. I hope that snows because they need a little wetness out there out west. Uh, so I hope that goes well. But come back and visit anytime. Oh, definitely will. All right. And thanks to everybody who's listened in to our um, oncology morning commute. Uh, HER2 positive CRC therapies in clinical practice, Dr. John Marshall and Dr. Sunny Kim signing off until they re-sign us for another series of Oncology Morning Commute. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CRC3. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.